You're listening to You Don't Know Nick, the podcast, a podcast that explores the generational differences from Zoomers to Boomers as it relates to what's going on today. Enjoy. Hi, I'm Jessica Lynn Verde. And I'm Alex Mitchell. I know a lot about Middle Earth. Yeah, and I know that there were some rings or something. We're the hosts of the Podcast of the Rings. Join us as we deep dive into the lore of Middle Earth and cover the topics and people you might want to know about before the Rings of Power premieres on Amazon Prime, September 2nd. After that, we'll be doing an episode-by-episode recap and analysis once the series is live. Listen for a new episode every Tuesday. And until then, may our roads meet again. Sam, sure. wel- welcome. Hello. Hi. Oh, I was. I ruined that. I'm sorry, but you, thank did, you, didn't ruin, you didn't ruin anything. That's exactly what it's supposed to be. I appreciate you having me on. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Sam, I don't know you. My audience doesn't know you. Hopefully, that changes in your world. But your name is Sam Lacrosse. Why? Do I care? I'm just kidding. What, who are you? What, what's your deal? What's your thing? Well, if we're wondering why the last name is the way it is, I can, oh. do, I can get into that too. I know I kind of have a bizarre last name, like one letter's capitalized, the rest of it's not capitalized. And like, it's kind of like, you know, it's a sport, but it's not a sport, like the whole thing. But, um, you know, for me personally, so my name is Sam Lacrosse. You can tell I am from uh, Cleveland, Ohio at a suburb, about 20 minutes, or I raised in a suburb, excuse me, 20 minutes outside of Cleveland. Lived there for the formative first 18 years of my life, went to the Ohio State University for college for four years, and then went to Boston for my entry-level position, then moved out to Austin, Texas, where I currently am. And I'm here basically right now, so 24 years old, kind of just living life out here. I work in technology sales during the day, and I run a media company and publish a book, or write books, I should say, at night. So I kind of uh, find ways to keep myself busy, but that's kind of the neat and gist of it of who I am. I can get more detailed about kind of anything you would want to, but I would say just, you know, pretty simple life. I mean, two parents, two siblings, uh, relatively great family life in a lot of ways. And um, so that's basically all you need to know. Yeah, that's it. So that's the end of the podcast. Thank you so much. Yeah, no, no, no. (laughs) Again, like done. done. That's it. Only only two minutes. Yeah, we're getting in and out real quick here. That's a really good soft pitch for your life story, though, too. Sure. It's like, hey, this is who I am. This is what what I'm all about. Uh, So... Have you always been someone who had yourself like figured out or did this come from, man, I don't know who I am. Like, shit, I got to figure that out. Like you, you de- or is it like the salesperson in you? What, what is that impetus? Do you think? Well, the, the polite answer is, is fuck. No, I have never mm. had it always figured out. So, I mean, I think it's, I love that. Yeah. Well, thank you. So it's, um, you know, I have a sailor mouth. You can tell by this point, but. I'm of the worst, so you're you're in good company. My mother yells at me all the time for it. So I think the uh, the way you know I kind of would say or answer that question would be that I had the best gift in the world, which was to really involve and really considerate parents inside of my life at a very very young age. Throughout uh, you know throughout my life, I was fortunate that they really didn't have a lot of marital troubles. I mean, really no no not a lot of open conflict, no divorce, obviously, you know anything in terms of that nature, and they always were very in tune and supported with our family, particularly uh, their children, me, and then my brother and sister. My sister has autistic and my brother has some mild learning disabilities also. So they were really, really engaged with us because they had to be for my two younger siblings and for me because I kind of had to set the example for my other siblings. And I would say the catalyst for that would also be just my family's strong, strength, strong sense, excuse me, of values and their value system. 
and they really kind of were able to mesh really well together on their level being a husband and wife tandem uh, in combination together, which I think formulated to a lot of the success they had with their children and their marriage. I think, you know, for what we have done as our kid, as their kids, excuse me, we've all been successful in our various fields. My brother's a very successful welder. My sister has really, really made leaps and bounds in terms of her education in a lot of ways. And I think my parents and my grandparents and my family that was in my ecosystem had a huge, uh, huge part to play in that for sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I know you don't know me from Adam either, but, um, I was raised in a really lovely household. I'm the eldest too. Um, but there was divorce, there was fighting or like closed door fighting. And yeah. even still you ask any of my siblings, we thought we had a great childhood. And then you go to therapy and it's like, no, no, yeah. that, that, that was really traumatic what you went through. And, and like, oh, okay, great. That's why I have trust issues or what. But so what I'm, what I, one of the things I'm trying to accept or, you know, you, you see it on TV or whatever. I just have to learn that there are some people that are healthy that didn't go through certain traumas and uh, some people are healthier to be around. That doesn't mean, you know, I, you know, I learned one of the things that I think I'm very good at is being empathetic. Like I try, I, I try to no. understand where people are coming from. They might not have the same upbringing that I do. Why do they believe, like, why do we disagree politically to the uh, mm-hmm. amount where it doesn't stress me out too much. But, um, what it's hard for me to realize that a lot of people don't have the same kind of childhood that I did. So it's, I'm actually really glad to talk to you about that stuff because it sounds like, which it sounds like you guys had a pretty like your parents were pretty healthy they came to this in a healthy way they did like mm-hmm. made conscious choices and that's that does result in healthier kids or the best like runway possible to to pursue your dreams i think yeah and i agree with that fully and i think that you had a really really good point there in terms of being empathetic no matter what the situation or what the context is because some people, for example, in your situation, who do come from a divorced family or two parent or two uh, separate households or, or whatever you want to call it, they could look at my situation and say, like, you know, you had it all, you know, you had, you know, two parents in the house, you had had a stable family. And I would say to that, I'd be like, well, you know, my sister's pretty severely disabled. And that is, you know, not the recipe for a perfectly like functional Brady Bunch style, you know, family environment either. Because, you know, that's that really, really changed a lot of things in our family dynamic. You know, my brother being, I would say, relatively slow to grasp things and, con- you know, concepts in school and that ha- and really, really struggling to get through school and everything like that. That had a lot of different things with it as well. My dad was away for probably a third of my, you know, development and when because he wanted to work so hard because he always would say rightly that, you know, Sam, I got an autistic daughter. I got to make sure she's okay. And so that put a lot of stress on my mom, which therefore put a lot of stress on me. And then I probably put a lot of stress on everybody else because I was just growing up and all this kind of thing. So to your point about it, it's it's not there's no really, you know, quote unquote, healthy family dynamic. It's about kind of what degree of health that is and how people handle it and respond to it. I think it's really the big conjecture and all of that. And I would say I've known people from all different walks of life that have been, become either fuck ups or become really, really good people because of any circumstance in the book, no matter what that is. And so when listening to people, and I think, you know, in college, I really, really got a hold of this because I thought that I knew people in my working class and middle class town back in Ohio that were, you know, very, very, you know, kind of, you know, messed up or whatever, you know, quote, whatever word you want to use. And then I remember, I'll never forget this. I was in a kind of an intro to Ohio State class my sophomore year because I didn't get into the college my freshman year. They didn't you know, let me go in. They had to go to a satellite campus my first year. And I remember going into that class and I was thinking about, you know, I'm going to, you know, prove these motherfuckers wrong. I'm going to do all this other kind of stuff. I'm going to do everything else. 
And then this girl comes in. She's like, yeah, my aunt just died from breast cancer last weekend. My dad beat me all the time growing up, everything else. And I'm like, well, I, I got to check myself before I wreck myself here. And like, this is going to be, you know, if we're going to play this card, you're going to have a long uphill battle to kind of get any sort of, you know, traction going on this. So it was, um, you know, you all have to have context is really important. And I think that's what a lot of people have lost in, in this day and age, especially. But uh, having that context is a very, very valuable thing. And looking for that first, I think it's always something you have to consider when in entering a conversation with anyone. That's a, it's a challenge, right? Because we're, we're coming, I find it a hard thing to do when I meet new people to not be like, hey, here's 17 things about me. Hey, let me give you advice for something that I yeah. thought was really interesting. Mm -hmm. uh, I, you know, a lot of people aren't like me. Uh, my family, we spent a lot of time talking to my dad, asking him for advice and seeking advice. So we go to, like me and my brothers share this quality. We'll go to friends asking for advice. We want someone to tell us what to do. And then when someone comes and tells us that they had a shitty day, we're like, okay, well, you could fit it. You could fix it this way. You could fix it that mm -hmm. way. Blah, blah, blah. And then yep. some friends are like, I just want to vent. I don't want your advice or whatever. Right. Like, so yeah. learning that too. Um, it, there's some people are nuanced. People are easy. People are difficult. And it, you know, you'd have zero idea what someone's going through. And yeah, you might've had the worst day, but also you have to do your best to leave that at the door. So like that woman, that girl whose aunt died, that's awful. It's horrible, but she's also there that day too. And it's not yeah. time. It's not time to like trauma compare also, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Yeah. I don't and know if I, I have a point there, but do you have a point? No, I was, was going to say too, like I remember in my junior year of college, I remember I got the call from my parents that my dog was dying at the time. So uh -huh. I basically, you know, I had that to deal with. And so I, that obviously put me in a really, really shitty mood. And so then I was going to get food at Chipotle or something. And I remember I, th this guy was just, I don't know, really, I really don't remember what he was doing. He was just kind of just, he's one of those people that like you stand in line and you just want to like get, get your damn Chipotle bowl and walk out of the restaurant, but he's not trying to have that. He's trying to like, you know, tell you about his life, like throughout the time, the guy's like scooping the rice and the beans and everything inside of the thing. And I just was not in the mood for it. And I, and I snapped at him when I went to go get stuff. And I basically said, I was like, or in the line, I said, you know, dude, I'm like, leave me the fuck alone, basically. Yeah. And I remember I had to go back and when I was getting, you know, my, my patented Chipotle fork and all the other kind of stuff that you get at the restaurant, if you're a sane person, I remember, you know, talking to the guy afterwards and I said, you know, Hey man, like I'm, I'm just having a really bad day, man. I'm like, I'm so sorry. Like I did not mean to, I didn't, please don't take that personally. I'm sure it's not an, uh, an indicator of who you are as a man or whatever. I'm just having a really, really bad day. And he's like, Hey dude, like, like to his credit. And you know, I was totally at fault here, but he's basically like, Hey dude, no problem. I, I get it. No big deal. Everything else like that. So, you know, that's always something that I think, you know, a lot of people and me right. especially have, have had to reconsider in the past couple of years. Cause I mean, I was talking to my grandparents about this. I was talking to a lot of my friends about this. Like we've been through a, a lot of really, really bizarre things in the last like three ish years, especially. And it's affected a lot of people in a lot of different ways. So if someone does treat you not well, then you have to assume maybe that there's a little bit of something boiling under the surface that you might not know fully. And you have to take that into consideration when you're talking to anybody. And that, it, like for me, I'm a, I want to take that personally. So, because I'm, I'm like you, I definitely attack first or I definitely, yes. I'm, I'm the aggressor usually, mm -hmm. um, especially oh as a form of 
defense. So there's plenty of times where I had to walk away and go, actually, I was the asshole in that moment. Right. Like I might not have, there's a couple of people that I could definitely, if I saw them walking down the street and be like, I screwed up in that situation. I've, I, for your sake. And, and like, it's like very validating that you got to be able to tell that person, Hey, I, I fucking sucked in that moment. I'm sorry. Yeah. Like I worked at a restaurant and once someone that treated us like shit, um, came in the door, treated me and like somebody else. Like it was just such a rude person. Mm -hmm. And then at the end of their meal, came up and said, "I was hungry. This isn't an excuse, but I was in a. I was very un unpleasant. So it was. Yeah. It's nice when you can see, actually, it's like someone, like learning how to apologize, is like one of the best strengths. It doesn't mm -hmm. mean you get carte blanche to behave like a jerk, but but you're totally right that like. This, it's like it's a it's, it's there's so many levels to it just because someone's going through a bad day doesn't mean you need to put up with someone treating you like shit yeah. but someone might be having a bad day and you're just in the war path so that mm -hmm. you know step out give them a little grace or and or get out of the room if you can so yeah so this is interesting because you do bring up like i mean it's it's a word that no one has to say but it's definitely as colored my life, your life, and 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 the pandemic, the co like the COVID thing, and and politics and all these things. It, yeah. it it I'm pretty much ten years older than you, and this podcast started out as um just like an examination on generations where my place was. Nick literally is my co-host who has a second baby, so he can't be on the show right now. So I get to talk to people. Oh, well, like, I, I would say the baby is is pretty important. So you should. They, yeah. I let him have paternity leave. I was yeah, like, okay, let, go. let him have the baby, like do like the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. fine. But yeah. but we we got to make this show because of the pandemic. Uh, we worked together as uh, improvisers. I produced a TV show that he was the lead. Like he's very he's a very sweet guy, and that's why we said you don't know Nick because he's just a little bit older than me, and he doesn't know like what like the kids are talking about. Why do they use certain emotes or whatever? Even though he's like yeah. not that much mm -hmm. older, he just was like missing some of that context. Yeah. So one of the things I learned by doing the podcast was I'm no longer the relevant generation in a sense, like depending on what demo you want to go off of. Yeah. Depending on what it is for sure. Correct. Absolutely. But like mm -hmm. in terms of like the hot, sexy, really cute fashion setting, whatever, which really is still one of the only values society places on women. Like the second you get older, you start like losing your currency. It's also sure. not true, but like, I'm also an, an actor. So like there's certain things like that's hard to like get away from. Mm -hmm. Totally. You know, yeah. I'm you're 24. You're in the exact bracket that I would want to be in if I wanted to be a huge celebrity, because that's all like ingenues are always at that at that age range. Like Florence Pugh is perfect for that right now. Mm -hmm. You know, Zendaya is perfect for that. It used yep. to be Zoe Deschanel, you know, it used to yeah. be Renee yeah. Zellweger. So but then they, mm -hmm. they, you know, then you don't see them anymore because they're not as cute and young. So I, I'm obviously not condoning that. I'm just reflecting no, that sometimes no, no, society no, you're, yeah, you're saying how it is yeah so one of the things that i remember people telling me when i was coming into adulthood was well you it's, it's very different for you now you know the the recession was not what you guys were were prepared for uh mm -hmm. i didn't i didn't know what that meant i i also didn't have enough money for that to really matter either way you know right. like i wasn't gonna get a um you know a, a dollar bill rollout to college anyway and I was going to have to work no matter what. But the world that we were told existed was based off of my parents' 80s ideal of what the world was going to be. Mm -hmm. So you, 
at this at a similar age, like kind of like bright eyed, bushy tailed, like I'm 18, let's go. And then the pandemic comes along. You like you got to go to probably college physically and then had to stop going physically. Am I wrong about that? Or? No, no, you're you're exactly correct. So it was it was so funny because I, I went in with a bang and then I without went out with a bang. So I started college in fall of 2016, which was Trump and Clinton going at it in the wow. presidential election. Wow. Sure. So I, I started, um, I started college in August of 2016. So that was one, two, three or two, three or two months before the November election, obviously that wow. flipped the world upside down. So went in with a bang and then COVID hit in March of 2020 and I graduated in May of 2020. Wow. So it basically all shut off right at that two month mark at the end of it. So it was kind of a crazy bookend in the front end, if you want to call it the, one of the two things, but it's, um, you know, it's, it's different circumstances, but you know, to you guys and I am personally of the belief that the millennials got a really bad rap in a lot of ways. I think you guys are really unfairly criticized when my generation should be much more criticized than you guys are. Personally. <laughs> I, I don't know how much criticism helps anybody, but I, but that's very nice of you to say, you know what yeah, I mean? Like no, I, giving grace to every, like, Hey, go let Gen Z be Gen Z. That was one of the things I had to learn was like, you guys can wear bucket hats. That's okay. We already did that. It's ugly, yeah. but go ahead. Like, do mm-hmm. what? What do I gain from go? Like, it's there's nothing older than to go. I Gen Z's really gotten not very cool. You know what I mean? Yeah, and, like, yeah sure. And Gen, and Gen X definitely wanted to give us a hard time because Gen X wasn't us. It mm-hmm. and and they weren't the young ones anymore. So, mm-hmm. you know, there if you. If you go through eras from as early as like newspapers were being made, there's like there was a, a Twitter thread that I saw. It's like, are today's children too soft? Nineteen twelve. Are today's children too soft? Nineteen twenty five. Oh, really? Yes. So it's funny. Everyone even that there's a David Bowie song, like, uh, give the kids a break, they know exactly what they're doing. And it's mm-hmm. just an old people that like are like the old guard, people that are afraid to like let go. Yeah, uh, we'll we'll judge a millennial. We were fine. We mm-hmm. like sure you could tell me I was an, an idiot. Like I I don't understand responsibility. I was getting drunk and then showing up at work and having a great time. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. the, it, sure. Like I think one of the first things I asked Nick was, "What's your impression of millennials?" And he says, "You guys are lazy and entitled." And I said, "All right, sure." And in some ways, we are. And this is actually what really, um drew me to your little log line because you did write a book and, and that you're kind of on your your tour right now for your book, which is what, what I do want to, I do want to, I want to pick your brain about it because you say- Yeah, no, I was going to say, this is great. We can get to the book whenever. Keep going. With oh, I, no, it's all part of it. It's all- yeah, Okay, all right, yeah. You, was, you hit all the demos right. that I would love to talk about because you're, you're Gen Z and that's important to me. Like another friend of mine, She's like, Jessica, we need to learn, we need to meet Gen Z people because we're going to follow behind if we don't. And in, in, in like the most- generous and inclusive way. She's sure. um, a woman in my life who was very pivotal in helping me understand what normalization actually means when it comes to diversity. Uh, and mm-hmm. then, so if she's saying we need to meet Gen Z, I was like, yep, you're totally, <laughs> I get it. Mm-hmm. I know exactly what you mean. Cause you can fall behind personally. So what, one of the things that I think one of my guests was talking about this couple weeks, a couple weeks ago, one of the biggest lies we were fed is that anybody can be anything. That is and exactly- I'm, And I'm trying to wrap my head around that because that exact phrase also gave me so much power. It it would would, you know I had the I had the um I had the I have the good fortune and and capability of whatever I put my hands on I will be able to become 
not a, if not a master, very good at it. I will do it well. Mm-hmm. I will be competent at it. Um, I can accomplish it. And I also had, similar to you, parents that were very um, intent on, on making sure I knew what my passion was and that I would follow it. Um, okay. That, that backfired when it came to my sister, which was a whole nother story. You know, she didn't have like an executable, clear cut dream. So she didn't get fostered in the same way. And and mm-hmm. she's so like in one way it worked for me and another way it didn't. So I guess that's my my point in saying hearing you could be anything helped me to go, yeah, I can definitely be successful. And never, I never felt like there was an inadequacy because I was a woman. Of course, I was being read to be complacent when a guy hits on me and go, oh, I just not say anything or whatever. And then I, yeah, I right. came into right. So I didn't yeah. realize how much I was being bred to be in a sexist world, but it didn't affect me. Like I'm being held back and da, 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 da. I, I, I yeah. just knew what the the ground floor was and how to navigate it. Yeah, so, you, you knew what it was, but you didn't really necessarily go out looking for it. And right? I didn't begrudge it either, or I knew what to avoid. I would say too, so my main passion is acting and and I've, I'm very grateful that I, you know, so I did improv and it taught me to kind of like follow the light, like, oh, I'll do podcasts. Sure. Oh, this is fun. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the pandemic was absolutely draining to someone like me who gets a lot of um, energy from performance. So learning how to get that in a different way, even Zoom wasn't yeah. quite enough. Like I'm, even though I'm conversing with you and getting to know you and it is fulfilling, I'm still just talking to a computer, Right. you know, yeah. I'm, I'm still giving energy as opposed to, you know, exchanging it yeah, in like, some like ways. Yeah, like it in some, yeah. Mm-hmm. Which is literally mm-hmm. a, li- a lifeblood for me. So it's a long way to say, your, your, tell us a little bit about your book and then let's unpack some of the ideas because I think... It's something that I've been trying to wrap my head around, um, that concept of telling everybody that they, they can be anything they want is not did not help our society. So I'm curious how, as, as someone at your age, got to that um, understanding, or, yeah. or what, yeah, where did you get where did you get that from? Who told whose idea did you still steal? Who's who who did you kill and then take their book idea from? Mark Manson. Okay, probably. who's that? He is the author of Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck. He's that mm. guy, like the guy at least, cool. you know, like at the airport all the time. So I, he's my main, I, I say that to say, I, I hope I, I actually emailed him right before I hopped on this podcast. So hopefully he does not listen to this and then see like, okay, I, this guy, you just like narking for whatever. He is my main inspiration as an author and as a writer. I Amazing. Say, in a lot of ways. So he, um, so he, in a lot of ways, and I actually, I'm very curious what you would think about this in terms of your answer and your kind of, you know, inquiry into the be anything you want to type of you know persona that you guys were fed as millennials and it was so funny because one of the most insightful clips i've ever seen people talking about this was with lex friedman and tim dillon and they talked about this exact thing and tim dillon said who's a comedian i don't know if you know know his work no but i i love this because you're introducing me to names that i uh, you're you're opening a little bit of a world that i wasn't aware of so that's cool so in my opinion, he is one of the, both one of the smartest and one of the funniest people I've ever heard of in my entire life. And so he has the same critique that you have where he said, you know, and that's why I said, like, you guys got really bad advice. And he said, you know, he, that is the same thing with the millennial generation. You could be anything you want. You can do all this other kind of stuff, everything else. And that led to obviously a lot of bad things and bad connotations associated with your guys' generation. And I think why Gen Z is in a worse situation with that is because in one, we've put ourselves in mandatorily, I would say, 
is because we've had that problem not only fed to us, but we've had it compounded by a lot of other factors. So we've had it compounded by social media, especially. We've had it compounded with the internet. We've had it compounded with a lot of different things. And we have it thrown in our faces all the time. And I'll use myself as the, as the, you know, the nail in the situation here, because let's just say, you know, there's, you know, a couple of people that follow me on Instagram. I only have like a 700 followers, or whatever. I'm far from a celebrity, but let's just say like some people want to say that, you know, Hey, you know, Sam wrote this book. Like, you know, maybe I like, you know, why, you know, why am I not writing a book? Why do I feel like shit that I didn't write a book or have a podcast or have a blog or anything like that? And that's the complete antithesis of what I want people to think is because like, I am like some kind of special person because I did something that I wanted to do. That's not the case at all. And I think that there's a lot of data around, I say, I would say, especially, you know, things like social media use, pornography consumption, everything around us and how it's warped our perception of things that are really, really essential to the human condition, like ambition and love and fulfillment and a lot of other different things and everything like that. So in terms of that, I think, you know, my generation is going to be the one that's most fucked up. And I think it's going to have to be my kids to help save all of us from the mistakes that we've made. And we can get more into that later. But to your point about the book, I've always wanted to write and I've always been, I would say pretty good. It's one of the few things I would say I'm pretty good at in a lot of different contexts, because I wrote competitively as a child. I was like one of the 45 best writers in the state of Ohio in middle school. I did all the AP. I, I, I kind of had a very, you know, interesting, I started reading very young too. So that obviously helped a lot. And then I was kind of a tweener in high school, meaning that I was in the jock group of people that I, I played football and I lifted weights and I grew my beard out for six months and I did all the things. I didn't do anything well. Like I wasn't a good athlete in the slightest, but I was also the person who was in AP language arts classes in high school. And I was into like second wave feminism. And I read all these other type of things and I did like all the, and I, I wrote stuff and I did all these other things. And I, I interacted with the complete opposite side of the spectrum that I did be everything else. So I didn't really have a set group. So I was able to get a really big, you know, melting pot and collaboration between two worlds. And I felt that really, you know, helped to complement a lot of my writing stuff. And I would say in terms of how the book inspiration came about, I was in the summer of 2019, I was going through a period of kind of just, it was my, you know, big, like my big boy internship. I was a finance major in college. And this is where like, if you don't get an internship your junior year at a respectable institution, like you're, you're a loser. And like, everyone oh. looks down at you and like, this I'm so school. glad I didn't go to college. <laughs> I am. We can get into that too. But I think <laughs> the big thing in terms of that was that, you know, I had a job at a pretty, I was working interning at a private bank. I didn't like it very much. And obviously I'm writing books and doing tech sales now. So obviously it didn't really work out very well in the end of the day, if it was to work out at all. And so I remember I was having a conversation with my mom in the kitchen of our house. And my mom is a very intelligent woman. She's a very perspective, real respectable, has a lot of perspective on the world. She's been through a lot in her life. She came from complete chaos in her life. Like, I mean, her side of the family is very, very messed up in a lot of different ways, way more messed up than mine was. And so she has a lot of experience, a lot of hardship and a lot of different things. And so she and I got to a rambling conversation, like I think all good conversations do. And it ended up on the subject of belief. And she kind of threw an offhanded comment out there. And she's like, well, you guys, meaning primarily Gen Z, people, people my age, like you guys just don't believe in anything. And I said, you know, in one thing, I was like, well, that's kind of harsh. And on the other part of me, like being the inquisitive person who always wants to, you know, question people in authority and everything like that, like, is that negotiation or is that, you know, assumption true? And so I started looking into it and I started thinking about like everything. Well, you know, what do we value as society? What is this? What is that? What is everything else? And so I kind of came up with a preliminary uh, preliminary conclusion of the more you value something, the more you will sacrifice to get that something. And the less you value something, the less you will sacrifice to get that something. 
And then that's just kind of how my brain bizarrely works. I just threw it in the back of my head and didn't really think much of it. And then well, I think that's the one of the best ways you can be like, it's like, Hey, let me stew. Like that, that works for me when I start stewing on the idea, which is right. literally starting to, you caught me when my brain is starting to stew on this idea. Like, what does it mean? I can't be anything I want to be like, what does that imply? So I think that that's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I think it's, it's just kind of like, and it ended up working because then in October of 2020 or 2019, excuse me, I, you know, basically was in my economics class. I was a finance major. Like I said earlier, I had one advanced economics course to graduate college. And so it was with a really, really nice professor, but I was a senior in college and I was kind of checked out by this point. So he was a really, really nice guy, older gentleman, you know, walrus mustache, the whole thing, been a career academic for like 25 years. He liked, you know, me and my friends who sat in the back, even though we kind of just didn't really, you know, he got a sense of what was going on. He's like, okay, these guys don't really want to be there. So I'll go and like, I'll joke around with them and stuff. And I remember one day in class, we were going over just basic economic principles and like supply and demand curves, that kind of stuff and everything else. And then I kind of had like a eureka moment where I was like, wait a minute, holy shit, this is a relationship between two things. What I thought about earlier was a relationship between two things. So what if in order to explain this to people, I could use my analogy and model it with this analogy to make a whole new concept out of it? And so that I knew I wanted to start a blog in January of 2020, and I did. And so that was my first official post other than the hi, I have a blog now post. And so that was kind of the thing where I basically outlined and what would become chapter four of my book is the value sacrifice trade-off and the value sacrifice curve. And so I did it and I modeled it out and it went pretty well, I thought. And I shot it over to my friends. And they said, well, this is an example of how I'm applying this. This is an example of how I'm doing this. And so I was like, well, this is kind of cool. And so I thought it went really well. And then in the next month, I did chapter two. And chapter two became chapter three and then chapter four and chapter five and chapter six. And I think I got to chapter seven or eight. And then I remember I do weekly FaceTime calls with my parents every Sunday and I was on with them. And I think I was like, you know, guys, I think I have something here. And they basically said, you know, Sam, go for it. Like, go for it. We really, you know, it's like, if you think you have something, then, you know, go, go and see it through to the end. And I did. And so I basically, what I took is I had the general aspect of the blog post talking about, you know, the typical things, you know, things about values and personal values following economic principles. And so I basically scrapped everything, rewrote everything, added some chapters. And, but what I was missing was the through line to tie everything together in a neat fashion. And so the thing I used as my through line was the topic of identity. And I don't think there's any more topic that's pretty hot button or a lot of other things than the subject of identity in culture right now. And so I used that to say my thesis for the book was the way you form a constructive and a pragmatic and a good identity as a person is to base it on your individual value systems as a person. And so I took kind of the conversation we were having culturally and then applied it to ways to form your own values. And then I used that in combination to make the book that eventually became my book, Value Economics, which came out, came out earlier this year. And so I finished it at the end of 2021 and I edited it and everything else. And I remember I had read David Goggins' book. I don't know if you know he, who he is. So David Goggins is the guy who wrote a book called Can't Hurt Me, who's probably the best uh, the best-selling self-help memoir in modern American history. Like it sold, you know, a ton of copies and made $25 million off the book, everything else like that. And so in the back of his book, he had a company called, you know, Scribe Media that published this book. And so if you know Goggins at all, and you should, like, he's the guy, I don't know if you've seen people, he's the big, you know, ripped, tall, black dude who yells at you in the camera, like every time and all this kind of stuff. And so it, like, he's a, he's a strict disciplinarian like he like it's one of the most incredible stories you'll ever read in your entire life and so 
I was thinking to myself, I'm like, okay, if this guy is going to let anyone publish his book and tell his story for him, he's going to have to really, really look into these people. So I looked into the company. I liked the company and I scheduled a consult with them. And so I pitched uh, the guy uh, named Miles Road, who's basically their head of author talent over there. And I pitched him the book and he offered me a book deal on the spot. And I signed about a week later. And uh, then about eight months later, the book was out on June 28th of this year. And it's done pretty well. It's been, um, it's been, uh, I was hit number one on Amazon in two categories. It, um, you know, it's in, uh, it got featured in Forbes magazine. It's in the office of two pretty well-known senators right now in the United States Senate. And so it's, uh, it's done, it's done pretty well. So it's been a really, really cool and unique process, but that's kind of the genesis of how the book came to be, what the book is and where the book is now. Sam, I, 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 I have so many questions, but also I, I think it's so awesome what you did. You, your brain works similarly to mine. You're like, okay, who do I like? What do I like about that? How did they come? You know, how did they, who did they work with? How did they get to where they wanted to go? And mm -hmm. not a lot of people have this gumption, but reaching out, sending in, sending a, an email to Mason and yeah. you know what I mean? Like what's the worst that could happen if you're being earnest? The worst is that they don't respond. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So really, I don't know whether, What's amazing is at 24, you've already set yourself up on a path where it's like, hey, I'm probably going to be successful at no matter whatever whatever I do. I, I want to unpack the idea a little bit about the – so the the book is value economics. I One of the things I struggled with – I struggle with is depression. And I mm -hmm. came out of a relationship that was very, very unhealthy. I knew it was unhealthy going into it. Yep. And I was – I still wasn't even ready to move on from it, but I knew I had to end the relationship. But when I got out of the relationship, I literally was experiencing uh, withdrawal, like someone might from drugs. Yes. Yeah. And my self-esteem was depleted. I, I knew I had this penchant prior in a previous relationship that I wanted to end. Like, by the time it ended, I was like, I'm ready to go. But I still was, um, like, self-esteem depleted and mm -hmm. I, I like and sometimes like when you're with someone that's like narcissistic or or it's like even just an unhealthy relationship between two people I experienced like an erosion of my self-esteem yeah. so by the time I came out of this relationship I had no foundation because I I didn't have any I didn't have any sense of self I knew a couple of things that I liked to do but that was I robbed like the joy was robbed from me um so I, I had to kind of crawl back into even just like the basic, who is Jessica? Why am mm -hmm. I Jessica? What, what do I like even? Um, yeah. And so I had like some people like have come to me and go like, well, I don't even know what my identity should be essentially or who I should be or what, what am I? Mm -hmm. um, so is, where does value economics play into something like that? How would it have helped me at that time? Yeah, for sure. And I think that in order to do exactly what you just described, we have to get very, very basic and very, very foundational. And so in terms of economics, I don't know if you remember this from like maybe middle school or something, but I... Oh, I'm very, I'm very bad at math. I'm very bad at numbers. So you oh, okay. just, just so, treat so, me like I'm, I'm not yeah. a child. No, I, so there are these things called the factors of production in economics. These are the four critical things that people need to do in order to create an economy of anything. So you need land, labor, capital, and entrepreneurship in order to create a economy, in order to create, create something from nothing. You need to have those four vehicles. So we literally start in the first chapter of the book with the factors of value production. 
So those things are basically your experiences, your effort, your self-discipline, and your self-awareness or your discipline, your self-awareness. Say it again. Experiences, action, discipline, and self-awareness. Wow. So in order to get what you value, you first have to experience the world from my understanding. And I think if people are really honest themselves, how they experience life, particularly in your formative years and as a child is going to shape how your worldview goes and either you either adhere to it or you go in almost the complete opposite direction of a lot of it. And so it teaches you by going through it really what that is. And so I would say in a lot of ways, when I say, you know, people have asked me about values and everything else, you need to get really, really basic. You need to strip away all the fancy shit, everything else. And I would say in terms of, you know, I basically sold this book is what I call, and again, it's kind of taken from the uh, Mansonian, the Mark Manson logic of the world is that self-help really, if you don't know who you are first, how can you help yourself? That's I mean, where exactly, that's exactly where I was. Yeah. And, and I think that there, that's unfortunately where a lot of self-help people, they just prey on people who are mentally either destroyed, probably like you were in a lot of ways and emotionally oh, very yeah. weak and fragile and a lot of things. And they say, if only you buy my book, if only you need this five point plan, if only you execute my thing, then you'll be fine. That's garbage. Like that's bullshit. And so you need to, it's a, it's a deeper essence than that in a lot of ways. And so I, you know, I remember basically, you know, in, if we're getting, you know, into, into the weeds with this kind of a situation, the end of my book, I kind of have a similar thing where I, you know, really, really fell out from under me probably right before or during the pandemic, especially it really kind of got called out, but I was a, basically a porn and sex addict for like 12 years of my life. And so I remember, you know, unfortunately, like a lot of, a lot of young men today, especially, and I assume young women, although I think it affects young men much more, I think the, the data proves this, but you know, there it's, it's a lot of, it's a lot of, you know, across both genders, but regardless, I think, um, there, you know, I remember, you know, I saw porn when I was 10 years old and the kind of, you know, just generally I had social anxiety again, because of my situation with my family, with my sister, with everything else, I really was a lot more mature for my age. So I really didn't. You get, had to be, you ha- yeah. that, that is the yeah. older child's plight. And then add on top of it, uh, your, your sister and your brother, not necessarily mm-hmm. having the same runway that you did. There's, yeah. There's, yeah, totally. Yeah, and, and so my parents were very, very strict and they were very, very hard on me and, and good, with good intentions. Obviously, I, I understand that it's not easy, yeah. but it, but mm-hmm. it is a thing. Yeah. And so I basically felt very, very isolated as a child. Like I didn't feel like I was a kid, but I didn't feel like I was an adult. So I was kind of, again, in this tweener stage and I didn't really, really relate to anybody. I didn't really have any friends. I didn't really have a lot of other things. So when I saw that and it made me feel good, it gave me that dopamine hit. I really, really dove into it and it got worse. Obviously as social situations get more important to your life and more complex and everything else. And I started really, really ramping up my isolation. Like I remember I was you know, just, I was withdrawing from the world. I was an incel basically in a lot of ways. And so I was withdrawing from the world in a lot of sense. And my whole identity was wrapped around when I can get my next fix. And there's been a lot of debate on whether pornography is, can be classified as a drug. And I've heard whether it's it's either a drug or a compulsion or something like that, whatever it was, I had it really, really bad. I knew a lot of guys that struggle with this and I can confidently say that I was the worst out of all of them. Like I, it got to a point where I was just, and I think it, it got to a point, I think, and maybe you can correlate this with your relationship as well, where I remember just at a certain point, this is in college, I was just watching the most disgusting, vile, degra- like I, I didn't like, you know, like, you know, just I was literally watching women getting degraded on camera. And I'm like, this is like, you're a piece of shit. Like, you're just you're like, you're a disgusting human being. But and you he- were, I mean, t- you're not, you were chasing the high. 
It's I was right. Yeah, yeah. But and so, you get a little, you get a little bit of a pass on that. You know what I mean? You, yeah, you were going yeah. for a higher stimulation because your your threshold was lo- was larger. Yeah, yeah. No, it, it definitely like I, I equate it to a little bit in the case of drugs. I say like just as they're harder, harder forms of drugs, it's harder, harder form of pornography, all that other kind of stuff. Anything that's really like that. And so I remember I just got, I looked myself in the mirror and I'm like, I'm sick of being this person. I'm sick of you know feeling this way all the time and doing these things and doing these awful things. And what I tie into the last lesson of the book is basically the lesson of what I call self-value. And I kind of contrast in the sense with self-love in a lot of ways. And it's, it is important to love yourself, but in order to, like, you shouldn't love yourself when you're doing bad things. You shouldn't love yourself when you're deliberately making yourself miserable. That's a very, very significant issue. And I think that's what a lot of the, again, the self-help, self-love people get wrong a lot of the time. And the way you fix that is you need to have self-value first before you get to self-love. And so having self-value, valuing yourself enough to fix yourself and eventually love yourself is much better than doing the same thing in the inverse. Because if you are loving yourself while you're not being who you could be and you're hurting people and yourself in doing that, then that is not an act of love at all. In fact, I would argue it's the opposite. And so I think in in a lot of ways where people are hitting kind of that rock bottom feeling like a piece of shit moment, you need to really analyze and see that you are a valuable person. Like human life is the most valuable thing in this entire world. It's not even close. And you think about all the variables that you have, whether it's the biological realities of men and women, when men and women, you know, interacting and getting pregnant or the reality of your home life or being born in a, in a better country versus a worse country or a violent country versus a nonviolent country or growing up with parents that don't fuck you up or something like that. Like the odds of you coming out a successful human being are really, really low when you think about it. So if you do come out a somewhat functioning human being at the end of the day, you are very, very lucky and you need to value that because value comes out of scarcity. And if there is nothing more scarce than a quality human being I mean, any human being, I would say in that regard. And to not treat that as valuable as I think is a very, very big mistake and to not treat yourself as valuable is a very, very big mistake. And so to combat that and really to have value about yourself, then you can go about really formulating your values and building yourself back up after that moment. You're, you're hitting a lot. I'm, I'm reliving in a very healthy way, not in a, um, I say like, no, 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 no PTSD. Not, not, not not PTSD, but you are reminding me one of like, one of the things I struggled with the most was the value part of Mm -hmm. it. Um, I I knew I was depressed. I knew I had gotten out of depression before. And this is how I I learn is usually like reflecting on how, um, how that affected me. So that I usually when I find the personal relationship to someone talking about something, I'll I'll retain that information better. So that's why I'm reflecting on how this would have applied to me at the time. Um, uh, everyone's like, well, you you have no self-esteem. You don't have self-love. And then and then I was looking at this person that I didn't really like and going, well, wh- how do I have value? And my depression is telling me I don't have it. And so no. I didn't know how I, – I didn't even want to do the things that I was taught to do in order to get healthier, like look in the mirror and go, you are worth it. You are – you know, you're beautiful, blah, 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 all these things mm-hmm. you're supposed to do even if you're like, you know, fake it till you make it. It's one of those things. Yep. Um, I I think it's an interesting concept. I, I think you're right. I, I just guess I didn't feel like I was all that valuable when there's nearly 8 billion people on the planet. And mm-hmm. what makes 0.0001% of that valuable? Um 
and I know a lot of people feel that way, and that doesn't mean I I'm not. But I that was a hard at the time. That was a very hard concept for me to get past mm-hmm. as someone that was worthy enough to even exist, let alone feel better. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I totally feel that. And I think that that's a very, very good counter argument to what I'm saying, because I mean, you know, you are part of one, 8 billion people in a lot of, in a lot of different ways. And I think that for people who can't understand that, and because I think people are very, very hard on themselves at the end of the day. Like, I mean, you had to basically stop me from just bashing my head in with a sledgehammer verbally a couple, a couple minutes ago. And I remember that the thing that really, really helped a lot of the other things. And I, and I say like, you know, I thought about, you know, basically like, I remember I didn't really have a friends and you know girls didn't like me i thought i was ugly everything else like that kind of thing yeah, kind of sure. thing. and i basically said like you know the whole thing it's like you know well you know what the fuck is even the point at the end yeah. of the day you know what would like like what what is even you know what are we doing here and i remember at the end of the day the thing that really stuck in my mind was my family and i remember you know because this is where i think validation from others can help you in a lot of ways because if you do have people in your life that love you and that genuinely love you and I think that there, if you're very, very blessed in the world to have that. And this is why I think depression combined with not having a solid, you know, network of family and friends around you that really, really do provide for you is a really, really terrible thing. And it's, it's dangerous. I, it, it really is. It truly is. And I remember, you know, basically at the end of the day, it's like, okay, you know, if I were to, you know, harm myself or, you know, do whatever, you know, how would that make your mom feel? Like, how would that make your dad feel? It's like at the end of the day, it's like I just it came back and maybe this is maybe a, a you know projection of me not wanting to disappoint my parents or whatever. But, you know, at the end of the day, it that's kind of what would stop me from basically doing any destructive behavior when it got too destructive was that I had a lot of people around me that I knew would just because they wouldn't see it as me taking it out on myself. They would see it as a reflection of, oh, my gosh, I failed this person and they would hurt because I hurt myself in some form or fashion. And that was a a thing that really, really helped provide a lot of that value inside of me because I basically said, you know, like, okay, I value myself. I know that that is a thing that, you know, I need to get better because I don't think you can help yourself if you don't value yourself. But there's a lot of things in the context of your life in terms of your network of friends and family that, you know, they care about you. And they, like I said, about value and sacrifice and earlier in the thing, and that's, I think, the crux of the the crux of the book in a lot of ways is that these people value me enough to you know love me unconditionally and ask me how i'm doing and do everything else they must really really be sacrificing a lot internally to do that because that's a very very expensive resource and giving yourself unconditionally to somebody in that kind of way and so that there's got to be something there i thought there's got to be something there because if there's not then everything i thought was true about the way people interact with each other is wrong and i don't think it's wrong and I think that there was a lot of that involved in my personal recovery and my journey to kind of really center on this topic of values and do everything else in terms of setting my value structure up and really being forceful about interacting that within the world and showing who I am authentically and everything like that. And I think that that is where healthy validation from people who truly value you and truly like you and truly love you can really, really play a big part in that. It, there's a couple challenges and I, and I just want to like, not debate you on it, but I want to no, sure, like- go ahead you know, do verbal tennis with you. Um, A, it is, if you already have like skewed values, you already are like, uh, women don't like me, but at least mom likes me or whatever. Mm -hmm. You're still looking to someone else for that outside source of validation. Right. And uh, you can then, 
there's the issue of, well, you know what? As long as I just try to do what my parents want me to do. Like, I, mm-hmm. I, I just am just trying to, like, see the flip of that, right? Um, you're still not getting better for yourself because you still – like, I had a hard time understanding that unconditional love existed <coughs> in, in a male, that a male right. could love me unconditionally. And then, you know, I have my mm-hmm. therapist reflecting back to me. She's like, does your brother love you? I was like, yeah. I was like, well, that's a male. I was like, well, yeah, but like yeah, male, males that I fuck is a little yeah. bit different. Than, yeah. but, uh-huh. but she's not wrong to kind of like, okay, but w- is this really truth that you – it was even getting to the point of understanding that that was something I believed was mm-hmm. difficult. So you have – still looking for an outside source of, of value is difficult. I can say honestly, knowing that – um, my actions at the time when I was dating that guy that wasn't good for me hurt a couple other people in my life. Mm-hmm. That was a good stopping point too. It was like, oh shit, I mattered enough to these people that I really like to hurt yeah. their feelings, and that sucks. Mm-hmm. So I was lucky enough for that too. And and you're at, exactly to your point. I do have a strong base of humans that really care about me. That if those some total of people like me. I have to be in that mean group somewhere. I definitely yeah. like the medium yeah. average of it. So, mm-hmm. but there's the other issue, which I, I thankfully can't claim to understand very much. But when someone's at the end of their rope and they're ideating suicide, um, no matter who loves you or how many plans you make, you, you still think that that's the only solution out. And, mm-hmm. I'm not suggesting that we're going to have the answer to help people (laughs) through something like that. But you hear of people with beautiful families on the outside and dad commits suicide even after Mm -hmm. making plans to go fishing next week or something like that. Um, One of the shows that I've been lucky enough to have, uh, I had the good fortune of reviewing the Orville, um, Seth MacFarlane's The Orville. And one of the episodes, one of the characters commits suicide essentially and mm-hmm. is able to get brought back to life. And that's just the really basic way of putting it. It's way more nuanced than that. But one of the, yeah. the, the, the ship's doctor says to that person, there's no problem too big that literally can't be solved, which is, which helped me understand that that's how people who want to commit suicide feel or yeah. that, that mm-hmm. there's no way else out. And mm-hmm. in reality, your mental place that's telling you suicide's the answer is the most is is a dire situation. So where how do you combat something like that? Which I think we all like you you even said the reason why I'm like going there is you even said like I stopped myself from like something worse because I knew it was going to hurt these people. But if that's not even an obstacle or if you're like you know what I'm going to save my 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 family <laughs> the stress where how do you how do you get out of that? Where do you find the value other than in your family? Yeah. And I think it goes back to the essence of self-value in the sense that I think in, and I describe basically what good values look like earlier on in the book. And I think, you know, good values, if I had to describe them, I think holistically, I would say that they're, they're lasting and they can really, really last you a long time. And to your point that that person, I remember, you know, I've, I've seen a lot of shows or a lot of characters are either com- like thinking about suicidal ideation or do commit suicide or everything like this. I, I, you know, thankfully don't know anyone who's personally done it, but I think that, you know, a lot of ways that people get overwhelmed with that idea of ending their life or something, doing something really bad or something like that is they're, they're taken by impulse. They have one bad, like it, it, there's yeah. the old, um, I don't know if you are a comic book fan or a superhero fan or whatever, but 
all it's, you know, there's that famous uh, Batman and Joker comic where the Joker basically tells his origin story. And he basically said, all it takes is one bad day. And then, you know, I became this person. One bad day was all it took. Right. And all a person needs is one really bad moment or one really bad day or one something like that. And the answer I think to that is that knowing that it's just a moment, it's not your entire life. And that's very, very hard to tell someone who is at the end of their rope. But right, I remember, right. And, and, you know, this, this might be a little bit idealistic, but I remember hearing a quote uh, early on in my life, probably when I was in, I think, you know, seventh or eighth grade uh, by Eric Thomas, who's a motivational speaker, who's a really, really, you know, good person in a lot of ways. And he, he has his most famous quote is that, you know, pain is temporary. It may last for a minute or an hour or a day or even a year but eventually it will subside and you'll get better. And there is something to that, I think at least mentally. I mean, there are some people that have you know, terminal cancer or they have a lot of stuff that you know, pain, the pain never goes away and it eventually kills them in a lot of ways. But in terms of your emotional state and your emotional well-being and everything like that, you have to understand, I think a lot of people understand or need to understand that emotions are made to fluctuate and they do fluctuate in, in the vast majority of cases. And there are some people either with mental illness or that get really, really far down and eventually do do something bad. Like if they don't inflict that pain on themselves, they go and they, they shoot up a school or they do something else like that right. and everything else. And I think the, the thing involving the harming other people element is that there is a little bit of narcissism to it in a lot of ways, because I remember, um, I remember, you know, in the, in the second chapter of the book, I talk about the Chardon high school shooting. I don't know if you remember that, that school shooting that was in, Unfortunately, there's so many. There's so many of them. So, so basically, um, Chardon was is important to me because it happened 45 minutes from my house, and so it basically was very, very close to where I'm in Austin, Texas. So Uvalde was only, you know, it's only about an hour and a half away from me now. Wow. And so it, it, you know, there was another one that happened recently that was obviously incredibly tragic. But I remember Chardon was it happened when I was a, I believe, in seventh or eighth grade. I think it was in seventh grade. And so you know, T.J. Lane, who was the Chardon high school shooter, he was beefing with this kid at this high school. And he takes takes a gun out. He kills a bunch of people at his high school, and he goes to the trial where they try him, obviously, for murdering and slaughtering people and hurting people and all this other kind of stuff. And so T.J. Lane, in a lot of ways, was taking his pain that he felt out onto the world. The Columbine kids, if you read their manifesto, and yeah, I, right. And you know, the Columbine kids were exactly like this. They were taking their pain out that they had for themselves out into the rest of the world and said. I have to feel this way. So you all will feel this way. Right. And I think that stems from narcissism. And I think the big thing was that can be amplified with that was in the TJ Lane case, because TJ Lane, when he's getting tried by the judge that eventually sentences him to prison for three lifetimes for committing the murders of the three, the three boys he killed in the high school, he goes into the courtroom and he's obviously wearing a dress shirt, like, you know, courtroom decorum, all this kind of stuff. And so as the judge is talking to him and giving him his sentence and everything with what the jury's deliberation was, he gets up and he takes his dress shirt off and he takes his dress shirt off and he puts it on the table and he obviously has a white undershirt on underneath it. Like, you know, any guy or a girl would that has something like that on. And it has the word killer written in all caps on it in magic marker. And you have the people that whose sons were murdered by this kid, a couple, you know, in the courtroom with him, watching him getting sentenced. And they, the judge basically hands out a sentence. You're going to prison for the rest of your life. You know, Mr. Lane, do you want to say anything? And so he gets the microphone up and he basically takes it and he looks to the families and he sticks his middle finger up at the families in the courtroom with the hand that pulled the gun that killed their sons. And he says, 
this hand that pulled the trigger that killed your sons now masturbates to the memory. Fuck all of you. And then leaves. And so that is not the act of a nihilist. That is the act of a narcissist. And so I think in a he lot wanted of the people, attention and he got it. Unfortunately, you know, there's right. a part of me that's tempted to mute you saying his name because that's what he wants. Also, yeah. you know what yeah. I mean? Right. Um, right. I think, mm -hmm. though, from what we're talking about, I'm not obviously not going to because it is important to realize that some people are just absolutely fucked up. And narcissism, mm -hmm. my, my therapist just told me this. She said, no one's more self-aware than a, a narcissist. That's no right. one is in more pain than a, a narcissist. That's why they, they, they inflict so much pain. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree with you. And I think that that, you know, obviously that's an extreme example when you talk about a school shooter or anybody like that, oh, but totally. I think, yeah. But I think anyone who really gets into their own head about, I, I, there was this to, for a lighter a lighter context, um, Chris Stefano, who's a very hilarious comedian who I, who I personally enjoy a lot. He was on Joe Rogan's podcast a couple of weeks ago. And so I, I, I love Chris's comedy and I think he's very, very funny. So I listened to, I listened to, you know, Joe Rogan's podcast with him on it. And he was talking about how he had all this anxiety and all this fear and everything else. And Rogan called him out on it. And he said, you know, this seems like you're making this all about you and you're not making it about an actual problem. And I was actually kind of shocked that he did it because he kind of really confronted him about it and almost had like a de facto kind of therapy session in the middle of everything. And, you know, Chris, to his credit, was basically like, yeah, man, I think you're right. I've never really thought about it that way, but I am kind of projecting my own insecurities and my own feelings onto all these people and making them conform to my worldview. And I think that's what happens to a lot of people who are either very anxious or very, you know, have a lot of, you know, emotional instability towards a lot of things or might be feeling a lot of things very intensely is that they they disregard, even if they don't know what they're doing. This, I think the most people don't know that they're doing this. They disregard the feelings of a lot of other people and they only make it about themselves and what the center of their universe really is, is about themselves in that moment. And I'm far from a therapist and I'm far from a psychologist, but I think that there, there is something to that in a lot of ways, whether it is in the case of one of these school shooters that we see that go and they take their pain out on everybody or someone that is in a relationship, let's just say like a guy in a relationship with a girl that says, you know, you're the one that's holding me back in my career because you're so needy or you do this or you do everything. And it's like, well, you know, maybe that's true, but I mean, is it, you know, can you look at yourself first before you really kind of go and project that onto somebody else and make her feel like shit? You know, it's just, you know, or you, leave that person then. Like, yeah. Right. Oh, no, I mean, instead right, of like, blaming yeah, them. Yeah. Right. Like you don't, you do not have to, you, you do not have to be in any situation that you do not want to be in, in most cases, in a lot of ways. So there are a lot of things where people can take much more control over their lives and over their state of emotion in a lot of ways, even though emotions are very uncontrollable at times. And I think that that is a lot of ways, in a lot of ways, what people can do when they're feeling either extreme sadness, extreme despair, to your point earlier about the people who are experiencing suicidal ideation, or the people that are really just kind of egomaniacs and just bloviate all the time. It's like, you know, there are, and that's why I think, you know, the final factor of uh, factor of value production is self-awareness. Because I believe self-awareness is the most important value you can possess as a person, the important trait you can, trait you can possess as a person. Because the people who are the most self-aware, I think, are the people who are the happiest, have, feel like they have the most control over their lives, have the best relationships with other people, and you know, just generally, I think, live better than a lot of people who don't have that do. I, I really I'm, – I'm holding on to the idea about um, the emotions. I feel like I could have and other people could have – been spared a lot of um, undue suffering had we 
learned about our emotions in a much more empathetic way that they are aqueous, right? That they will, you will go in and out of it. It's a strength. Like my strength is how much I feel, but it was absolutely my weakness also. Mm -hmm. And no one knew how to pull me aside and be like, this is a good thing. You're a good actor because of it. You're empathetic because of it. And it's going to really fuck you up a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, there's what I really like is that you have like a four pronged approach to the the like different ways everyone's brain works because I was very similar too. I because the pain I was experiencing, or also because I wasn't taught that everyone else is on this. I, you, know, you think everyone else has it together. I'm like, yeah, well, no girl can have sex just to have fun. Girls only get emotionally attached or yeah, whatever no, yeah, yeah it's it your brains do not work that way that's that's just not the case yeah well to some extent you're absolutely right yeah. but that's still mm-hmm. me reflecting my values onto somebody else when in reality there might be a chick that wants to get down and just and, sure. and you know yeah. what i mean and mm-hmm. there's probably like my boyfriend he only needs to be in love with somebody in order to want to sleep with them. Like has mm-hmm. tried the one night stand thing, but only is attracted once he's like, Oh, I actually have a deep emotional bond to this person. And yeah, yeah that's, that's the spectrum of asexuality and, and things like that, which is also complicated. And we're, we're, that's another challenge you have with writing this book is, you know, the, I, the, the, the definition of what I identity is to this mm-hmm. generation and, and beyond yeah. is constantly shifting. The, the terminology is constantly shifting. And we're all trying to figure it out on our feet. Um, so before I let you go, tell me why I can't be anything I want to be. <laughs> I think that people can't be anything they want to be because I think that people have a very unlimited approach to a limited thing, which is human beings are very, very limited people in a lot of ways. And I think that, you know, there's the, you know, the cliche example of, you know, I can't be LeBron. I grew up 45 minutes from LeBron too. Like I can't be LeBron. I can't dunk a basketball. I'm not nowhere near the athlete he's going to be. So I think that in terms of, you know, in the, in what we were talking about earlier, I think that people should be ambitious and they should strive and they should do everything that they can do because, Hey, maybe you are extraordinary in some ways. Maybe you are a very talented actress. Maybe you are a really good comedian. Maybe I mean, you are. I am Sam. I'm very talented. Okay. I am not saying you are not, Jessica. But I think <laughs> this is yeah, this is going to be. You know, I I think that and again, we need people who do do these things. Like we need right. people. And I think a lot of you know there are you know a, one of the reasons I'm kind of you know settling on why I wrote this book is because we need people in you know I like to talk about ideas, and I don't think a lot of people in Gen Z are talking about ideas. And so I said, you know, maybe there's a gap I could fill here. And so thankfully, I've been able to fill it, fill it at least with one book that sold a couple copies and, and what have you. And I think people have gotten I've had really, really great conversations, especially with people like you on these on these podcasts and everything about a wide variety of things. And no conversation has been the same about it. But I think that in a lot of ways that, you know, you need to have a sense of again, you need to have a sense of who you are. And like you said, you had a plan. You had a sense of your core competencies, your strengths, yes. your weaknesses, and you wanted to go about and do everything else. And I think when people have this amorphous, I can conquer the world in, in business, in Hollywood, in finance, and a bunch of other things, but they don't, one, they don't know who they are first. And two, they don't have an actionable plan to get there without, you know, and knowing really what you're getting into, because I'm sure you as an actress have, you know, you've at least thought of, and you've experienced these things a lot. Like it's really, really hard to do what you do. Sure. And, yes. And, and a lot of people, they just don't, 
they don't think about the totality of everything. And I think that a lot of people, they think they have these, they have these dreams and I have, you know, but they don't really know what the price to pay for those dreams is going to be. Well, or that it actually is not something they want to do. Ultimately, yeah. like I'm going to mm-hmm. encourage anybody to be an actor. If you tell me, Jessica, I actually really want to be an actor. I'm like, awesome. This is yeah. a job. <laughs> so mm-hmm. you're not going to going to go, you know, make a demo for voiceover and then start working immediately. Mm-hmm. It took me a very long time yeah. to see green, you know, to, to not be in the red. And then yeah. even I can still go into the red. So that's not, that's a really long way to say is like, again, I would say do it. If you really want to do it, you're going to have the best time. It's going to be work. And if this yeah. is something that, you know, you're just a megalomaniac or you just want attention, go do TikTok and then figure it out. Like, yeah, right, right. But mm-hmm. again, I would never keep anybody from this, but, yeah. but recognizing that anything is work and you, but you have to want to do that work. That's the, yeah. that's the key right there. Yeah. And, and I think like, you know, I, I've said, you know, now, especially like, you know, that I came out, you know, as publicly and I basically said like, I'm writing this book. And then a lot of people have said, you know, like, man, I had this great idea for a book. I have this great idea for a book and everything. And they've been throwing all these things at me. Look, look at this manuscript. Look at this, look at that. Right. Right. And I've looked at like a lot of different things and I'm like, yeah, man, I'll be or, or yeah. Like, well, I'll just go ahead and take a look at it or whatever. And a lot of them just, I mean, they, they, they kind of suck in a lot of ways. Like, I mean, they're just, they're just not, they're not, and I'm not saying I'm like, especially like in the next, you know, you know, whatever, Ernest Hemingway or whatever, but I think like there are a lot of people that just think they can, again, throw themselves in the ring and then automatically people will accept them as that thing. And that's just not the case. That's not how people operate. You have to really prove yourself as a quality type of person and do quality work before you can really get respect or credibility in any field in that kind of a way. And I think that, you know, the people who are willing to go down and do what I did for the last three years and work on this thing and, you know, edit my work like a, you know, like a Nazi and do all these other things where they kind of, you know, strip everything down. They're questioning every third word and every sentence and doing all that kind of stuff and then submitting it and getting constructive criticism and getting negative reviews and feedback and family members telling me that they hated the book and everything like that. Like, if you really are about that life, then more power to you. Go ahead, man. Like, we probably need more people in the field doing those type of things who are willing to put up with that kind of stuff. And what I would encourage people is to really find out what, you know, this is, I'm going to steal from Mark Manson again, but what kind of pain are you willing to sustain while doing all this kind of stuff? I call this in, I call this in, in chapter eight of my book, I call it, basically call it the, you know, the choose your hard fallacy, choose what hard you want out of your life. Like if you want to try to do the whole actress thing and go out and do that whole thing, it's going to be hard. But if you choose it, knowing what that hard is going to be, then you'll probably have a better chance of doing well at that thing. And I would say that's true with almost everything, probably everything that is worth anything in the first place. So what I would say is that, no, I'm not discouraging anyone from being the next, you know, Jennifer Lawrence or the next you or the next, you know, whoever is going to be, you know, in the domain about everything. But if you do not have the pain tolerance to get there, then you probably, unfortunately, you probably won't do it in a lot of ways. One of my favorite quotes is from Adventure Time and Jake tells Finn, dude, the f- sucking at something is the first step to being pretty good at something. So you do oh, have so to, good. I know it's so good because there was definitely a time when I was not a good actor, but it made me happy, but I also cared. And and you have all of the tools of being a great writer and you had the fortitude to see yourself through. So it, what it sounds like to me and my major takeaway from what we were talking about today in general is not only did you see something that people could like 
place into action in their life, you kind of lived it, which I think is awesome. Well, thank you, Jessica. I really appreciate it. And I appreciate that coming from someone who has been through a lot, uh, not only just professionally, but personally, and you were very open and vulnerable about sharing that. So I really appreciate that. And I think that, you know, we need, I think, more people like you to kind of say that, you know, hey, like, I'm here, like, I, I, I exist, like, I, I do, I do this thing that is really, really cool. And you can be this thing as well. And you can inspire a lot of people doing that, which I think is really, really awesome. That's very sweet. I do love sharing myself op- openly because A, I can't help it. And B, yeah. if I can help one other person understand themselves just a little bit better, then I I, I do feel like I can I – f- I feel good about that. Sam, yeah. if you had – so A, I want you to tell us where, you know, we can find the book. But B, mm-hmm. I want you to, like, give us, like, one sentence or one thing you want to leave the audience with. If they remember only one thing about whoever you are or whatever you just told us, what would it be? So I think, oh, well, first of all, I'll get to all my shameless plugs. So I yes, am, yes. Uh, my name is Sam LaCrosse, L-A capital C-R-O-S-S-E. I am on social media or Instagram, uh, Real Sam Lax. LinkedIn is where I've done a lot of my marketing, uh, ironically. Smart. So LinkedIn, you can find me too. And then uh, my blog is don'treadthisblog.com. My podcast <laughs> don't listen to this podcast. And the book is Value Economics, Study of Identity. You can buy it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, um, you know, anywhere you can really buy books online. And, you know, so I'm, you know, I'm all that stuff is out there. I'm, you know, currently I'm producing stuff all the time. I do one podcast a week, one blog post a week, everything like that. So, and they're pretty long. They're basically like book chapters that I kind of just write and do all that other kind of stuff. And currently working on the second book right now. So we'll see where that goes. And, um, I would say the one sentence that I want to leave you with is probably, I don't know if you read the, uh, the book description, the author description in the back of the book is that I'm a nobody. And I don't really, haven't really done anything special or anything like that. And I think a lot of people feel that way. And I think that's a superpower because if you haven't really done anything, then to your point, you can make an attempt to be something no matter what that is. I love that. Well, you're not nobody to me anymore, Sam. Well, thank you, Jessica. You are not, you were, you were nobody to me in the first place, but now you are definitely not. in. Definitely the- not a no. You're never no. going to forget the no, day no, no, you, you meet no. JLV. <laughs> No, I'm marking it on my on my cat, like scribing it into my desk as we speak. Like with the at knife. least it's at least it's not nine eleven that you're scribing because today's nine twelve. No, so, no, 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 yeah, no, definitely, it's... definitely not, definitely not. Sam, that was the worst way to end a podcast. But thank you for <laughs> being here to talk about nine eleven at the end of the podcast. Talk about, I talk about nine eleven all this. You know, we can. That's, that's a whole other podcast. But thank you, Jessica. I really appreciate it. I thank you very much for having me on. This is my pleasure. Good night, Sam. Bye. <laughs> Bye. That does it for this week, Nichols. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of You Don't Know Nick. There are many different ways you can support our podcast. One of them is going to youdon'tknownick.com and finding out all the different places you can listen to our show. You can also follow us on Good Pods, which is basically Instagram for podcasts. Not only can you follow your favorite shows, you can listen to them right there in the app. If you're interested in finding some You Don't Know Nick merch or Jessica Lynn Verde merch, go to subtlegeek.spreadshirt.com. And if you're not already consider becoming a patreon member you can get exclusive swag and early access releases to episodes if we're able to get them to you in a timely manner go to patreon.com slash you don't know nick and if you haven't already leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts see you next week nichols